Welcome to What Compassion Accomplishes, a podcast dedicated to sharing information, ideas, and resources about domestic abuse and sexual assault. The topics discussed in this podcast, including survivor stories, supportive services, and domestic abuse or sexual violence, can be difficult, and we urge you to listen with care. Our hosts are not licensed counselors or mental health professionals. If you or someone you care about have experienced domestic, dating, or sexual violence, please call the WCA's 24-hour hotline at 208-343-7025 or the National Domestic Violence Hotline 1-800-799-7233. You can also find more resources in the description of this podcast. Welcome to another episode of What Compassion Accomplishes. I'm Corey Michaels, along with Chris Davis. Chris, how are you? I'm doing great, Corey. Thank you so much for having us in here again today. Oh, always. It's uh, always my honor to be able to be a part of it. And, you know, we've been able to, over the course of all of our podcasts here, uh, we've covered a lot of different areas, uh, a lot of the population in different uh, different ways, different things to think about, uh, different people that are impacted by assault in some form. That's one of the things that that is so important is that there are so many different forms of abuse and it affects every section of our society, unfortunately. But knowledge is power. Absolutely. And knowing that there is hope, knowing that there is another side, there is a way out on the other side of abuse. And so today we have uh, we have another special guest that is with us today. Would you like to introduce her? I do. We Today we have a really special guest. I'm excited. Taryn, um, who has recently joined the staff of the WCA. Um, and she's got some really exciting things to uh, bring to the table, so to speak, your table, wherever you're listening at. Um, I hope if you're in the car, you have us on your hands free. Uh, or if you're enjoying a cup of coffee or you're joining this conversation, because, you know, we talk about uh, different things on this podcast, but it's really about what compassion accomplishes, right? Yes. Um, about uh, different types of abuse, how we can all be part of that conversation, how we can all contribute to changing our culture, right, Corey? Mm-hmm. Changing our communities, things we can do in different ways. So, um, Taryn is our new court advocate manager, and that's a huge a huge job at the WCA um, because it's our one of our fastest growing programs and has been for years. It's really, really important. Involves a lot of things like um, helping clients in the community obtain legal referrals, safety planning, and uh, and obtain civil protection orders, which are um, really important and can sometimes be really scary and intimidating. Yeah. But I want to introduce Tara because I think she's got some really neat. Neat. Thanks. Neat. I, I don't know. That's my new favorite word lately. Neat. Um, <laughs> neat. And I say it like that. It's driving my family crazy, but I think it's neat. I think she's neat um, because she's she's got some passions that drive her to do this work, but also outside of this work to uh, help young girls and young women become all they can be. And so I think that is driving her into this work, but also driving her to better her community 
and and change culture. And that that also, uh, you know, lends itself to what compassion accomplishes. So I think we're going to have some really fun conversation today. So if you're just tuning in or you're just, you know, is it worth, you know, do I really want a podcast uh, time today? I think you should definitely give us some give us some time to listen. So Taryn, I'm going to turn it over to you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what makes you tick, where you come from and uh, why uh, why you're doing what you do. Yeah, thank you, Chris, for that neat introduction. <laughs> neat. I say, feel say, very neat. honored. <laughs> it's very neat. Um, well, as Chris said, I am the new court advocate manager at the WCA, and I'm very honored to be working with the WCA. Um, my background is um, a little it's different. Neat. So, yeah, it's, it's neat. very neat. It's, it, it's, it's very different from the work that I am doing now, um, but there are parallels and there are many similarities Um, in public service work in general. And so to dive into that a little bit, um, my background is um, I was a federal wildland firefighter for almost 13 years, um, and I was employed with the Forest Service here locally on the Boise National Forest. And as you can imagine, um, that environment is predominantly um, males. And so working in that environment for as long as I did as a female was very character building, um, but it also provided some unique insights into that sort of population, that sort of culture. And as Chris referred, you know, the the many different cultures that we hope to, you know, inspire and, and change and make a difference in, um, that's certainly one that could use um, some of that as the, you know, voice there is predominantly male. 13 years, you say? 13 years working as a fire, a wildland firefighter, right? In that program? Yep. Yep. Almost 13 years. It was 12 and a half um, by the time I joined the WCA. And the work was meaningful to me, but I would say I drew more meaning from my ability to provide mentorship to new girls entering um, the wildland firefighting realm. Um, Because when I started, I didn't have any female mentors. And it was difficult. It was difficult to come into a culture um, that I was completely unfamiliar with when joining. um, And to not see yourself represented in any of that space. Um, and not only to not see yourself represented in that space, but to not have a, a person or place to go to when you had maybe gender specific concerns or, you know, just somebody to relate to. Um, and I found that there were some discouraging, um, you know, information regarding women seeking male mentors in that field. And so you know, for my first couple of seasons, um, I would say my first four seasons, I felt very alone in that space. And it might seem like, why would you stay then? (laughs) Why would you stay in a space that um, makes you feel alone? And I guess the best answer to that is that, um, you know, I felt that it was important for my character to push through that discomfort. Um, but I also had this sort of altruistic idea that maybe I could make this space better um, for new women coming in or just for for other men to learn to work with females in, in that arena. And so, you know, in my first couple of years, I I really had to work hard, um, harder than my male counterparts um, for equal respect. 
And I don't say that to be disparaging towards the agency or to the work that those men and women are doing out there on the front lines. But I just say that to to just sort of bring awareness to the fact that, you know, it is it is dominated primarily by um, by white men. And this space isn't and the culture still isn't inclusive to those who are outside of those social identities. And so, you know, I stayed initially because I wanted to continue to improve upon myself. Um, But I think I continued to stay because I started to see those small changes that were happening, um, you know, just just locally on on the forest that I worked on, Um, but also started to see it happening um, on a national scale, you know, throughout the Forest Service, that there were there were terms that were being used and there was more inclusivity that was um, happening within that organization. And I was proud to be a part of it. I was proud to be part of, um, you know, one of very few women who were in higher ranking positions within the Forest Service. And to have young women who were just starting the job, you know, come to me for advice and ask me. And I was honored to actually be in a position to be able to help them because I reflected on on my first several years. And I, again, I just, I didn't have that um, And so I was honored to be able to provide that to other women coming in. And I think the the big segue for me um, from my forest fire career to now working with the WCA happened when I um, started working for the Centennial Job Corps program that used to be in Nampa, Idaho. And Centennial Job Corps had a partnership with the Forest Service. And what they were trying to accomplish was they were trying to create um, a fire discipline, so to speak, um, at the Centennial Job Corps Center. And through that, we were able to start um, what I would refer to as like a militia crew. So these, these individuals that joined our crew were part of other trades within the Job Corps Center. And so they were working on things like plastering and painting and welding and electrical and, and in their free time, they wanted some extra money and and they wanted to see what, you know, forest firefighting was all about. And so we would train them after their trades had ended, um, in the evenings and then on the weekends. And through that, the Centennial Job Corps program developed an advanced trade, um, which became the Wildland Firefighting Advanced Trade. And I was promoted to a squad boss within that program. And I noticed, you know, almost immediately um, just this phrase that we use in social work, which is the person in environment perspective. And that perspective became very clear to me in that environment um, because we were trying to teach these young men and women to be professional firefighters and and to work in in a dangerous and dynamic environment. And what I was seeing was that many of them were struggling with things outside of the classroom. They were struggling to meet, you know, many of their basic needs. They were struggling to... um, comprehend um, some of the trauma that they'd experienced in their lives. And I noticed that with those individuals who were really struggling, that they weren't going to be successful in our program without, you know, some sort of acknowledgement of the other struggles that they were going through. And so it was there that I really knew that my path was social work. And, you know, that had been from from my early years of, of mentorship and leadership in the Forest Service, but it really 
it really came together at the Job Corps Center where I saw this on a very more severe scale where these individuals needed more help than I could provide them as a squad boss on a, on a fire crew. And so from there, I decided that I was going to go back to school and that I was going to study social work. And I felt immediately that that path, that calling was the right path for me, because as soon as I made that decision, it just seemed like everything started working in my favor. And I don't know if anybody else has ever experienced that where you start off on a path and you don't know for sure if it's the path you're supposed to be on, but you get all sorts of synchronous signs from the universe will say that, that tell you that it is. And, and I, I certainly had that, um, you know, pursuing social work in school and continuing to mentor and be a leader in the fire community. And so, um, here I am at the WCA today. And I think a lot of my passion still drives from some of the experiences that I had while in, in fire. And many of those experiences were very positive, Um, But there is a side of that experience um, that was negative and that um, did contain things that, you know, the WCA is trying to educate and and teach people in our communities. And so when I when I initially started at the WCA, I had a conversation with Chris um, because I felt like it was a community of people, a culture of people um, that's very specific and unique and that could really benefit from the education and the language that we use uh, within the WCA just to inform our communities on, on what abuse is and all the different forms and faces of it. And so, you know, I'm, I'm really seeing my paths converge now. I'm seeing everything come together and, and all the work that I did in firefighting, how that is impacting the work that I'm doing now in for the WCA. And now you get to be on a podcast, Dr. <laughs> and so now I'm, I'm on a podcast. Yes. <laughs> educating, educating, and uh, talking about it in many forms and fashions. Did a, I hope this is one more avenue of which it can converge. Um, well, and it, it truly yeah. <laughs> did have to be a calling because yeah. going from smoke eater to, you know, uh, to social to social justice, justice <laughs> that's not what most people would would have thought. Yeah. So, uh, I that's why I. I just think it's, I, I think it's amazing and compelling. I think you're kind of like a superhero when you, I think you need a cape or something. <laughs> um, no, I think it's a fantastic um, story. And when you light, I'm sitting here watching you as you're talking, actually, and you can just kind of light up. You have this um, bright light that's coming from you. And I think you're calling, I think you have found your calling. Um, and I hope you continue to feel that because it is truly a calling to do this work and to work with people who are experiencing some some hope, hopefully it's the most significant trauma they ever experienced because it is very, very traumatic and it is very hard to sit beside someone while they're experiencing that and, and just be there for them and help them try to understand it and provide resources for them, of course. But, um, you know, knowing they're going through that, but, um, and you know, you can't, you can't fix it for them, you know, but, you, you chose to go down a path so that you could do something for folks. Um, and I think that's incredible. Well, and now, Taryn, what, when you started with the WCA, what was some of the biggest surprises 
that that you found? Were, were there things that that when you started and started working with the clients and seeing it on that that level that was surprising to you? You know, I would say that the biggest surprise to me was how accurate my education in domestic violence had been and how accurate the portrayals of um, what an abuser looks like were because, you know, there are many tactics in, in, in power and control that are predictable. Um, And I think that's why the work that Chris and her team do is so important because we can honestly give this information to our communities and um, we can know about these things, not just within people that work, you know, inside of domestic violence and and sexual abuse agencies, but in our neighborhoods, in our schools, um, in other workplaces where this is occurring. You know, I didn't think that it would look so textbook. And I say that not not saying that all abusers are the same, but that the research they have done on the behavior tendencies of abusers are very textbook. And you do see them. And it's almost this like light goes on and you're like, I just read about this and I'm seeing it in real time now. Yeah. And I think it was surprising and it and it wasn't. I think that's pretty interesting to hear. You know, I, I think I, I needed to hear that as almost as a reminder because, you know, I've been doing this for I don't know, eight and a half, nine years, and I I read about it. I talk about it. I even th- I think I dream about it. My husband gets really tired of hearing about it. He's like, you're not at work anymore. You need to turn it off. Um, and we talk about it and we talk about it and we talk about it. And I it's been a long time since I've been in a classroom or anything that's not related to, you know, something that's put on by another um, DV organization or something. So I think that's um, a good affirmation for us to hear and a reminder uh, for anybody listening to this that there's a power and control wheel. You know, the Duluth model puts out, you can Google it. We share that with anybody. There's a cycle of violence model that's very simple to explain. Uh, and if you're outside looking in, um, it may not be so easy to understand why someone. Uh, doesn't leave or, or why they choose to stay. Um, but it's it's very complex at times. And we we work really hard to try to explain that to people so they can understand and why uh, understand the, the myriad of reasons why people, you know, choose to stay in a relationship, why it takes an average of seven times before somebody successfully leaves a relationship, all the different kinds of, of abuse um, beyond physical abuse that sometimes can have far more um, long-term impacts and scars uh, than just that physical abuse. Those are things we talk about and we will talk about and we'll continue to talk about because they're happening to your next door neighbors down the street, to people in your church, Mm -hmm. to people checking out your groceries, to the the person helping you in the library, um, you know, to the car, you know, the people in the car, the cars around you when you're sitting in five o'clock traffic, which we uh, all get to do these days, it seemingly, you know, it depends on which statistics you're looking at. The one in four women, one in 10 men, one in four, one in seven, one in three, according to the World Health Organization, you know somebody, even if they haven't disclosed to you. Mm-hmm. We, uh, when we go out tabling and we stand behind that WCA logo, we become safe. We become safe to talk to. And uh, we were out uh, just last week and the team was out. And I have brand new folks on the team. We've got a great outreach team now. Um, and three different people came and disclosed some pretty severe. You know, I was a, I was a client of the WCA. 
one young woman walked up to me and said, I wish you had been around when I was six. So these are students at CWI. We'll be at BS, you know, Boise State next week. We were at a, um, our prevention team did a, uh, an, an assembly for all these students. It was the first time they'd done something like that at a high school. All the students. The next, very next day, our crisis case manager came to find me, which we don't hear about this very often. So we were at, at College of Western Idaho while our prevention team did an assembly for all the high school students. We don't know which of us reached a student, but the next day the mom called and said, you were at my kid's school. My kid staged an intervention and I called and so this this client is now uh, receiving services. That's so, amazing, right? We know we know this is happening all around us. We know we know it is. So, folks. Well, you you've said it, and we've said it on all of the podcasts. We have to talk about it because for the longest time, and until very recently, no one did talk about it. It was that dirty little secret. That's you know, that's for them to take care of in their own home. And from the police all the way to coworkers to whatever it happened to be, no one wanted to talk about it. And so it just occurred. It just happened and it continued to happen and it got worse. And now having these conversations, talking about it, getting out in the community and Taking this subject out of the shadows and making people aware it's not okay to be abused. No one, no woman, no child, no man, nobody deserves to be abused. And the more we talk about it, the safer it is for someone to be able to come out and say, this is happening and I need help. You know what I hope we can continue to do also, Corey, which is a great point. It's taking it, bringing it out of the shadows, but it's also um, taking down that curtain of shame. Yes. Associated. Absolutely. That is the biggest thing. And I, I'm a survivor. Um, it's been a long time ago. It's, I want to say it's not my husband, um, but it took me a long time to get over that. Even being able to say that out loud, because I used to say over and over, like, I just have to forgive myself. I just have to forgive myself. And I never, I would say that over and over, like, yeah. and then I, after, like, okay, a lot of, you know, therapy and a lot of years and hours, and I'm thinking, what, what do I need to forgive myself for, yeah. for letting it happen, for making those choices? No, it, and then I had to realize I didn't do anything, but it was many, many, I was very young. I was very young at the time, but I, I know that I am not the only one having oh. those self-thoughts and having to yeah. try to just let go and forgive myself, right? But also it's the shame associated with staying, for getting myself in that situation, for bringing that on my family, for the embarrassment, and for being, quote-unquote, stupid enough to get myself in that situation, right? And the stigma associated with it. So how do we... How do we do that? We talk about it. We just keep talking about it and we open it up and, and that victim blaming abuse is never the victim's fault. No. And I think you brought up a super interesting perspective of what those who aren't experiencing abuse, what their question primarily is. And you said it, Chris, you said the question is, why does she stay? And I think part of this conversation around abuse you know, from an outside perspective, if you're listening to this, it's not, and it should never be, why does she, why does she or he stay? It should be, why does that person abuse them? 
Why is that person violence? Because Mm -hmm. their behaviors are not being highlighted. And what we know is that dominance functions by going unexamined. And if we continue to not examine the reasons why people are violent and we keep asking the question of why does she stay, that shame that you were talking about too. Um, you know, full disclosure, I've, I've been in abusive relationships as well. And I think I resonate deeply with that shame that Chris was talking about. And I think a lot of us are driven to this work because of our experiences and because of the things that we've, and, and that we were able to develop empathy from that. Um, but I would love to be part of the discourse of changing that question to not why does she stay, but why, why are they abusive? Mm -hmm. Why does he do that? Why does she do that? Well, now, Taryn, why don't we go back to what is it exactly that you do that you're providing? And it's such a vital component for someone because of that shame, because of that, those feelings that someone has, and they finally get out of that. And that feeling of being alone, that feeling of no one can possibly understand what I'm going through right now to then finally contacting the WCA and realizing they're not alone. And then you're a vital part then moving forward in their escape from that cycle. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think one of the first things that I noticed in interactions with first clients was that I was potentially the first person that ever believed their story. And I think there's power in just that alone, that sometimes we think we have to be able to solve people's problems when really all they need is for somebody to believe them, for somebody to listen to what they're saying and to provide compassion. Um, Exactly what we're here to talk about today. And so, you know, Chris touched on it a little bit, but um, our court advocacy program ranges. Um, We help primarily in the civil legal realm of um, court proceedings. Um, And and the bulk of our work is done in um, helping people file for civil protection orders. Um, That being said... We do also help with other civil legal processes such as divorce and custody and modifications to current, you know, custody agreements in place. Mm-hmm. And we connect um, clients who have complex or serious cases um, to free legal services, um, whether that's through our partnership with Idaho Legal Aid, whether that's through the Idaho Volunteer Lawyers Program, um, whether that's referring a client to the street law clinics that happen twice a month. Um, connecting people to that source is a very powerful mechanism. And, and somebody getting their control back mm-hmm. Um, because that first step of getting that protection order and of filing for divorce or of, you know, requesting custody if, if there's shared kiddos, that's a powerful first step in, in them getting that power back and them feeling confident in their, in themselves and their ability to protect themselves. And I think it's so rewarding because, you know, we see all sorts of people. Our program serves primarily the community whereas other programs at the WCA serve primarily our residents. And while we do serve the residents as well, we see a large number of just community members. Mm -hmm. And being the first person to help them restore that confidence, I mean, you can't put a price on that. That's... 
that's seeing that healing in real time. And so, you know, some of the other services that we provide that Chris had mentioned um, are, are safety planning. This isn't, again, asking why they stay in an abusive relationship. This is helping somebody make the best decision for them. And if staying is the safest decision for them, then that's the safest decision. Because what we know through research is that often the most dangerous times for a victim are right when they leave the relationship. And so it's helping people prepare for that. What does that look like? How do you how do you prepare for a violent episode? How can you make yourself the most safe before, during, and after? And and what do those steps look like? And so helping people find that also helps instill that confidence that they have, you know, they have some power in, in protecting themselves and they have some power in their choices. Well, and I think from each of those steps from believing them, believing in them, uh, giving them that that knowledge that they're not alone to the protection orders, to all the different pieces and parts that come along through this scary and horrific situation, getting them out of it. Each one of those components is what gives them hope. <laughs> it's what lets them know there is life again what's and it's also giving them helping them get their power back it's giving them their power back and helping empower them to have the tools to make those decisions i think so that when they're well if they're ready when they're ready right they they can and they also know where to reach out to to get more information so it's that safety. It's that initial safety. They have to be safe and they have to know what the information is and how to do certain things to then know that when they're ready, they can make those next those next decisions, right? And I want to give a shout out to Taryn and the court advocacy team because even in the face of COVID, Taryn joined right in the middle of this craziness, but they're doing virtual hearings with the courts. They're doing Zoom and telephone and they're still doing several thousand um attending full hearings and uh, ex parte hearings. So even with COVID and everything else, they are still helping so many people. And um, those community members, those community clients, a lot of people don't realize that um, we here locally help more than just um, shelter clients. So that's anybody. That is any person here in Ada County here locally who needs help. They can walk into the crisis center. They can call and get that help understanding the process for a civil protection order. That's a domestic violence protection order or a stalking protection order. So that's an incredibly valuable or invaluable (laughs) service to the community. And they help. and, And a lot of people don't even realize or recognize that that's available. But I can tell you the Ada County Court's do and they refer folks directly to them so it's just it's it's a crucial service for the community well taryn one more question when you're doing this and yes it it, it's so rewarding but it's also draining there's no way that it can't be when you're giving so much of yourself in order to be able to help these clients what fills your cup that is a great question you know (laughs) I truly believe when I said earlier that that social work is a calling um, in my life, I meant that in the way that I feel like I'm built to withstand the demands of working in such a draining occupation. Um, and I don't say that to 
toot my own horn. I think we're all built for different things in life. I think we're all built for things that we know that we are good at or that we enjoy or find meaning in doing. And, you know, it's interesting because I had a client ask me that the other day. Um, They asked, how is it that you can do this work day in and day out? And my answer was similar. I said, you know, I feel like I'm built for this. And, you know, whether we are working amongst it or not, it's still occurring. And so for me, I'd rather be a part of the healing process than to shut it out and know that it's still occurring and that I'm not doing anything to help. And so that's my, that's my large answer. And, and I would say I'm still human though. And so I, I enjoy going on walks, listening to music. Um, I'm a firm believer in practice what you preach. And so I go to therapy. I talk to my therapist um, and I have a good support system. And honestly, that support system includes the WCA is a very welcoming and supportive group of people who work there. And I know that at any given day that I could go to virtually anybody in that building and say, I had a tough day today and they would get it. Right. And so I think finding what it is that helps us in those moments, we all have different things that sort of help calm us. For me, it's always been writing and music, um, going for walks. And so finding those things and knowing when it's time to implement them, um, I think is the big key. But I also just feel like I'm, I'm built for it. <laughs> I don't well, know I would agree. <laughs> just in the brief time that we've yeah. gotten to know each other, I, w- I would agree with that statement. Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> well, Tara, we appreciate you for everything that you do, your passion, your uh, your desire to help and to give hope and to, to renew the power in so many individuals and families. So, Thank you very much. And thank you for being on with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was an experience for sure. You're really neat. (laughs) Enjoy it. (laughs) I think you you guys are really very neat. (laughs) And and this podcast was neat. (laughs) Yeah, Corey, you're neat. This podcast is neat. We are, you know, you always have to end things with a little bit of lighthearted. And when you, when you talk about the heavy stuff, that's, that's the balance of it. Yes. Find the, uh, the good and the lighthearted because there is good in the world. And, I yes. think Taryn, you're bringing some good into it, into the balance. So I appreciate you. I appreciate you coming on with us today, and I appreciate the work you're doing with the WCA. I think you've you, brought um, some good, sh- some good bright light into the world, and I appreciate it. And as always, all the numbers for you to be able to contact and ways to be able to contact the WCA are all in the description here of the podcast. And uh, we'll be back with our next episode soon. And this is going to be now taking on another piece of, uh, you know, as we talk about the different pieces and the different forms and faces of abuse, uh, we're going to be taking it to uh, to our BSU campus. Mm-hmm. We're going to be talking about uh, some college information and impacts, and uh, um, we have uh, one of our interns uh, coming on as a special guest, so I'm really excited about that. All right, so join us for our next edition of What Compassion Accomplishes. Thanks, Corey. Thank you for listening to this episode of What Compassion Accomplishes. Again, if you or someone you know has experienced domestic abuse, dating, or sexual violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at one 800 
799-7233 or the WCA's 24-hour hotline 208-343-7025. 